Welcome to the New Books and Political Science podcast. My name is Heath Brown, and today I have the real pleasure to have Eric Schickler on the line to talk about his new book, Racial Realignment, The Transformation of American Liberalism, 1932 to 1965. The book is published by Princeton University Press. Eric, how are you doing today? Doing great. It's a real pleasure to have read the book. It's a it's a meaty book with lots for us to talk about before we get to it. Maybe you could just tell us just a little bit about yourself. Sure. I uh, am a professor of political science here at University of California, Berkeley. I received my Ph.D. at Yale back in 1997, and I've written quite a bit about Congress, political parties, uh, voter partisanship and public opinion. This is um, the the uh, current book that you've written um, is is a big book in a number of ways. Uh, you cover a, a long period of American political history uh, with a number of different methods. Uh, before we get to what you did in the book, uh, would you talk first about what this book is a response to? Uh, this book seems to be set up as a response to a uh, competing explanation of partisan realignment in the 20th century. Um, what is that counter explanation? Sure. Well, back when I was in graduate school, I still remember when we would study uh, the transformation on racial policy, that the prevailing explanations we read tended to be very elite oriented, focused on national party leaders such as Lyndon Johnson and Barry Goldwater, who essentially spearheaded the realignment. Johnson by embracing racial liberalism in 1964 and Goldwater by, uh, you know, in a sense, championing the opposition to the, to the Civil Rights Act in that campaign, they basically defined the positions for the parties, and then those positions were passed along to activists, and then finally to voters. And, and so uh, in this kind of depiction, both the creativity of the civil rights movement, I think, gets lost, and, and I think a lot of the grassroots pressure for change within both parties' coalitions. You know, instead, you turn the clock back to the 1930s. Why is 1932 the, the start of your analysis and the anchor year in, in your subtitle? Take us to that period. If your argument is that this placing us into the 1960s is wrong, why 1932? Well, we, I start in 1932 because I think of that as the moment right before liberalism starts to get redefined in America. So as of 1932, if you ask somebody what it means to be a liberal – the answer you'd get is pretty inchoate, and that answer would generally not include concern for racial justice. Now, it's true that some on the on the further left, say in the Communist Party in the 1920s, were embracing uh, uh, the, the cause of African-Americans in, in particular strategic ways. But more broadly, when, when people were asking, is Roosevelt a liberal and will he represent liberalism, what's most striking is they weren't talking about race as part of that story. And the argument I make in the book is that by the time you get really to the 1940s, that's changed. And so we start in 1932 to, to get a glimpse of what it, liberalism looked like before this transformation began. And then we you know, cover in great depth the 1930s and 40s, where, where we really see, I, I would argue, liberalisms get redefined. How you build your argument draws heavily on some interesting new data and, and a variety of it. 
would you tell us a little bit about what you analyzed exactly? What are your main sources for this? Sure. Um, there are several major sources of data that I rely on. One is public opinion data. So uh, over the past decade or so, Adam Barinsky at MIT and myself have worked on a project to try to clean and kind of excavate some of the earliest systematic opinion surveys done by Gallup and other pollsters, which really began in 1936. And I draw upon the earliest questions on those surveys about racial attitudes to trace out how does racial liberalism at the mass level become connected with economic liberalism and democratic partisanship. So that, that's really one of the core new data sources. In addition, um, to try to see how this mass-based pressure gets kind of filtered upwards, I, I developed a new data set uh, with Catherine Pearson, who is a, a student of mine here at Berkeley now, professor at Minnesota, using what are called discharge petitions, which are efforts in Congress to force items onto the agenda. And this, I argue, allows for a much more uh, fine-grained examination of how members of Congress position themselves on civil rights. Uh, now you, and, yeah, please, go ahead. And then finally, the third major new data source is state party platforms, where we did a, a major project, uh, this with Brian Feinstein, uh, who is an, another of my graduate students, where we uh, collected a massive database of state party platforms and, and what we can use that to do is to examine when is it that, that state parties begin to move on civil rights. And what we see is that that happens long before the national parties move. Now, you argue for uh, two trajectories intersecting in a powerful way. What are these forces that came together during this time period that, that you think explain uh, racial realignment? Well, I, I think that they're really... Um, kind of two aspects to the story, two, two trajectories that are worth thinking about. One is a reshuffling of the democratic coalition that occurs really in the mid-1930s and early 1940s, where you get the entry of African Americans into the Democratic Party and the entry of the CIO as a major force, transformative force within the Democratic Party, and a reaction against those two transformations by Southern Democrats, where they start to become enemies of New Deal liberalism. And, and the argument I make in the book is that these, the, the, these forces really help to reshape what liberalism means in American politics. It becomes associated with urban areas, becomes associated with industrial labor, immigrants, and racial minorities. And in opposition to that, you see these Southern conservatives who really had been a backbone of the Democratic coalition for, for decades. So that, that's one piece of the story. But the, the argument I make in the book is that's not sufficient. What that does is mean that a lot of the same people who are in the Democratic coalition supporting economically liberal policies are inclined to support racially liberal policies. But to actually get those items on the agenda and force action, you actually you need the civil rights movement. And I argue that drawing a, upon a rich historiographical literature that, that you need to think about both the early civil rights movement during World War II, led by individuals like A. Philip Randolph, which forced fair employment practices legislation onto the agenda, as well as the later civil rights movement in employing a lot of more direct action kinds of tactics, that what those do is, is force elites to take a stand. And, and so, so one way to think about it is that you get this reshuffling of coalitions, which helps shape which side those elites are going to take when they're forced to take a stand. 
but you still need the pressure of the civil rights movement to, to essentially force their hand and move them away from the straddle that is otherwise in their interest. Now, there's lots of uh, interesting individuals uh, that you talk about in the book, and um, one of the heroes of your story is Robert Van. Uh, would you talk a little bit about who Van was and how he sat in the middle of the argument that you make, particularly in the, the first half of the book? Sure. Well, Van was the editor of the Pittsburgh Courier, which is really one of the two leading African-American newspapers in the 1930s, along with the Chicago Defender. And what was striking about Van is, you know, this is a state that had been dominated by Republicans. He had been a Republican, um, but he was a disillusioned Republican. And he is, he essentially approaches uh, Roosevelt indirectly. Uh, and the first time he does so in 1932, um, he doesn't get much of a response from from the from from Roosevelt. But he soon reaches out to Joe Guffey, who's a kind of rising, ambitious politician in the Democratic Party in the state. And Guffey, who's associated with industrial labor, with the CIO, big fan, his big hero is John L. Lewis. Guffey and Van essentially form a partnership or a coalition where Guffey uh, essentially commits the Democrats in the state to promote um, some civil rights legislation. And Van helps move African-Americans or try, encourages them to move into the Democratic Party. So he publishes a very famous editorial before the 1932 election tell, uh, advising African-Americans that it's time to take the picture, the photograph of Lincoln, and you know, turn it the other way, that this is no longer Lincoln's Republican Party, and, and really the Democrats offer the better hope. And, and what's crucial really is that uh, Van and other African-American leaders are successful in getting African-Americans to vote Democratic in 32, and then especially 1934 and 1936. And individuals like Guffey see this as a new way to build a party majority in the state. And, and this really becomes a template that Democrats build upon in the 1936 election with, with the Good Neighbor League and also Labor's Nonpartisan League really work much more forcefully to mobilize African-Americans. And really, they're drawing on the lessons they learned from Van and Guffey's work in Pennsylvania. Now, your book has a lot to say about how parties function and about the flexibility of party coalitions. You've already alluded to this a couple of times already. What if you talk a little bit about how the Republican Party responded to the changing politics of African Americans in the South? Because this seems to get to some of the the uh, what the meaning that we can make for the study of uh, political parties. Sure. Um, so as soon as you start to get Democrat, Southern Democrats, Southern white Democrats revolting against the New Deal in the in the late 1930s, and and Northern African Americans moving into the Democratic Party. There are voices within the Republican Party, uh, conservative Republicans, typically from the Midwest, who see this as an opportunity to form a new coalition. And they talk about using states' rights as early as 1937 as a way to bring together disaffected white Southern conservatives and, and Midwestern conservative Republicans and take over that party, move it in a more decisively conservative direction. But what's striking is essentially how long it takes for them to succeed, because the Republican Party is in a lot of ways itself divided. And if you think about the 
if you look at the national convention aspect of the party, so when they would come to nominate presidential candidates, there was really disproportionate influence for the more moderate northeastern faction of the party. So if you think about the candidates who win, it's candidates like Wendell Wilkie, Thomas Dewey, Dwight Eisenhower, all of whom get overwhelming majorities from states like New York, New Jersey, uh, New, and New England, and, and, are no, and are defeating quite often the candidates of the more conservative wing of the party from the Midwest. So what happens over time, though, is that the Midwestern conservatives essentially work to take over the party from below, building an alliance with the Sun Belt and with the South. And, and basically capturing the Republicans by essentially taking advantage of new state party organizations that get developed in the South in the 1950s and become a kind of power base for them to outmuscle the Northeastern moderates. Now, we started our conversation about what, what your book uh, sort of responds to, this, this more elite D.C.-based explanation of the same phenomena. I wonder if you could take us up to the 1960s. How do these two... Uh, how does your argument then fit with the, the moves that, that Johnson and, and Goldwater make? What is the, what is the linkage here that, that connects the two together? Sure. Well, in Johnson's case, I think the central argument that I, I make is that the party had been remade below him and that his own, rather than thinking about him as a free agent making a decision, He's really thinking quite hard about securing his renomination in 1964 and preempting a challenge from the left from, say, a Bobby Kennedy. And in that context, Johnson needs to embrace racial liberalism in order to show that he himself is a liberal rather than a traditional Southerner. And, and, and again, though, the reason he has to do that is by that time already, there's a clear majority within the party for the more racially liberal position. And, and this had, and the argument I make in the book is that this built up over time through capturing state and local parties, through rank and file members of Congress, and that and that over time that the kind of power balance within the party had shifted, and so uh, leaders like Kennedy and Johnson tried to straddle as long as they could because they didn't want to alienate the Southerners, but when the civil rights movement became so effective and the back and the disruption was so strong in the 1960s so that something had to be done johnson had a clear political calculus about which side to take now your book ends with a uh, a brief ref reflection on what racial realignment of the 20th century has to say about our current politics and we're, we're taping uh in, in the middle of a a very opportune time to reflect on just this point I wonder if you'd end our conversation today by briefly connecting some of the themes of your book to our current contentious political moment. Sure. Well, I think that there are two main lessons I would draw for the current moment. I think the first is to note that uh, while Northern Democrats tended to be more racially liberal than Northern Republicans dating back to the late 1930s, it's not the case that they were without prejudice. Uh, what's striking is, in fact, that within the Northern Democratic Party, you see plenty of evidence of prejudice throughout this period. Yet at the same time, uh, when policies were framed in particular ways, such as unfair employment, you were able to build coalitions to support them, in a sense, in spite of that prejudice. And so, so I think it's worth, it's, it's really important not to idealize 
what this northern democratic liberal agenda was. It's not the the claim here is not that um, these were pure actors. These were not not prejudiced actors. In fact, on some of the most hot button issues that persisted into the 70s, 80s and 90s, having to do with housing and schools, you, you see quite a lot of resistance there. So I, so I think one thing, one lesson is just just that um, that any solutions that we come up with need to essentially grapple with and confront the fact that there has always been this enduring strain of prejudice that's been prominent within both parties. I think the second lesson, though, is the more positive one I would draw from it, is the role of the CIO and African-Americans in outlining a kind of broad ideological agenda that linked together various group demands under a kind of overarching theme and, and connected them one, with one another. So what the CIO does in the 1930s is essentially come up with a rhetoric that explained why all of the different aspects of this liberal program they were pushing was really in the interest of all liberals, African-Americans, um, Jewish workers, Catholic workers, and so on. And, and that broadening, that effort to not see liberalism as a set of separate demands, but to see them as connected and, and where serving one of these groups actually helps strengthen the whole, I think that's really what's been missing from liberalism in recent decades. And so thinking hard about how the CIO and African-Americans in this alliance represent a kind of high point for that forging of a broad ideological agenda. I think that that might offer some, you know, a place to look today. Eric's really interesting book is Racial Realignment, The Transformation of American Liberalism, 1932 to 1965. The book is published by Princeton University Press. Eric, thank you so much for your time today. Thanks, Heath. It was a pleasure to talk with you. 